Ecclesiastes chapter 8. While you're turning there, I'm going to look for a sandwich. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's talk about how your love for other people stretches into your workplace. Ever have a bad boss? I'm sure glad none of the secretaries here raised their hand there. One of my worst experiences with the boss came in my third job. It's my first full-time job, and I was working in the oil field and fresh out of high school. And uh, this particular company had, I don't remember exactly how many people, I'm going to say 40 or 50 or so, and uh, I worked in the back in the shop area, and there were about 10 or 15 of us back there, and uh, it's kind of a nice little tight group, and they pulled me in immediately, and guys had been working oil field stuff for a long time, and they kind of pulled the new guy in, was teaching me the ropes, and one of the things they taught me was that uh, when we had the opportunity to get together and talk, uh, one of my favorite points of conversation was just how devilish our boss was. And uh, it was always interesting for me to watch as we were standing around talking how wicked that particular boss was. And then when he would come walking through the swinging doors to the front part, actually marching through them might be a better. He's always in a hurry going to get, get these people working on this job so we can make some money. Uh, and he'd, as soon as he would walk through the doors, those guys, their whole face would change and they would scatter into the shop. And then as soon as he walked back in, they would all kind of migrate back to where we were and we'd pick up talking about how much of a devil he was. And so I decided to use him as my inspiration for a sermon title today. And so I want to talk to you about how to act when your boss has horns. And if you happen to be a boss here and you have people who work for you, You might listen with both ears today because you don't really know what your employees are talking about you when you're not around. One of the things that I want us to get as we come to this passage today is recognition uh, that sometimes the hardest point of applying our Christian life happens for us on the job. Now, I haven't always been a pastor. I worked in the secular industry for a while, and so I get some of how sometimes preachers and church stuff is disconnected from reality. And this is one of those sermons that I want you to know that I come at it from that point of reference that I've had through the years that uh, sometimes working in a church environment is kind of sheltered. I mean, you know how it is. Everybody loves everybody in church, and there's never any problems, and it's all, you know, sweet singing kumbaya in the office all day long. But in the real world out there where you work, not always that way. And sometimes you get a boss who's just kind of difficult to live with. So let's see what the preacher has to say for us as we come to look at this particular passage of Scripture because he gives us some insights into wise living. As a matter of fact, we've been in this little section here where it's almost like he stepped back from this chase that we've been talking about, and he just gives us wise counsel on some of the kind of the mundane stuff of life. And today's passage actually starts in that section, but it transitions for us into a different section And so we're going to pull it all together here. And here's the first thing that I want you to get, all right? That is that there is a choice to be made in your life. You ever known somebody who was just bitter? I mean, 
you could just look at them and realize this person is mad at the world. My mom used to say they woke up that morning, they got baptized in pickle juice, and then they went on their way for the rest of the day with this scowl on their face like, hey, you know, don't mess with me kind of a thing. Well, here's a deal. Some people have situations in their life that move them to look like that. Some people go through things in life, and if I were to take the time and just kind of work our way through this crowd today, I already know enough about key people here to know that some of us either have in the past or are currently going through terrible circumstances in our lives. And if you're not careful, it causes you to kind of approach life in this bitter kind of a way that says, I'm not going to be happy, so don't talk to me about being happy. And especially when we talk about that Christian joy stuff, that's just wishful thinking. Bitter, bitter people fill our churches. For you, if you happen to be one of those people and the circumstances of your life are such that you find yourself looking down all the time with a long face all the time, hear me say this with all the love that I can pull together for you. You need to make a choice. You can't necessarily change your circumstances, although I wouldn't push that too far because a lot of times we can. But even if you cannot change your circumstances, you can change your perspective in it. And those things that currently choose or that we choose to let them make us bitter also can be opportunities for us to look at life and become better as people. So let's see what this preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes has to say to us. We start off with this idea, the choice is yours to make. Now, it's this transition, I told you that. Look at verse 1 together and I'll show you what I mean by the transition. In this section of these just general proverbs that he's been talking about in chapter 7, he now comes in verse 1 and he says, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And now he gives us the proverb part of it. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. What he's saying to us is, if you want to find somebody who's wise in their life, the place to look is at their face. A clue to finding the people who are now beginning to get a handle on this thing called life, as far as the preacher is concerned, is those people whose face seems to show that things are okay. I almost hate to say it that way, because the things are okay part of that really has very little to do with the reality behind this. You see, I think driving everything that he's saying is that your heart condition has a way of showing up on your face. You ever have one of those days when you go, you go to work or you go to, to somebody in your family and they see you and say, are you okay? And you, you know, the, my best answer is, well, I think so. I, I think I was okay when I left. Why? What's wrong? I had a friend of mine who used to say to my teenage sons at the time, when they would walk into a room, and especially the first time it was the most effective, he would look at them and say to our oldest son, for instance, Brandon, he'd say, Brandon, is your face okay? And Brandon said, what do you mean by that? Yeah, he said, well, it's killing me. I just figured it must be hurting you too. 
You ever have anybody ask you if you're doing okay? And they kind of, well, what do you mean by that? Sure, I'm okay. Well, you know, you just don't look right. I always tell them I was born looking that way. That explains a lot of that kind of stuff for us. Your heart has a way of showing up on your face. That's what he's saying in verse 1. So my question to you is, do you have heart trouble? Let's see if I can bring that down a little more practically for you. This is one of those stories that I heard years ago and actually found it, but I've not been able to verify that it actually occurred, okay? So in other words, it's one of those stories that you can get a hold of, preachers like these kind. Uh, It might be true, it might not be true, but I'm going to use it because it makes a great point. Understand that it may not be a true story at all, all right? So here's how the story goes. Back in the day when uh, airlines served food that you didn't have to pay for, a businessman had been working out of town, and it was time for him to go home, and so he went in, he got on the plane, and he was ready for his flight home. He'd been so busy that day, he hadn't had a chance to even eat lunch. And he had bought a first-class ticket to get back home, and it was one of those long flights, and he just couldn't wait to get on there and get his food so that he could take a nap and, you know, wake up and be home, finally. So he got on the plane, he kind of settled in, and those of you who fly first class all the time know that they start bringing you stuff to drink before you ever even leave the ground. And and so he started into that. Well, once they finally got up and traveling, the stewardess came through with his his lunch. And it was on a plate because he was in first class. And he took the top off of it and he was famished. He was so ready to eat as he took the top of it off and he grabbed his fork. He went to dig in and there laying on top of his salad was a cockroach. And he had something of the same response that some of you just had, except his heart condition immediately jumped to his face and out of his mouth. And in this case, he begins to just hammer on the stewardess. I can't believe that you would serve a, well, he had some words that I don't understand. Maybe you would, but I don't understand. He just launched on that stewardess. And after just a few minutes of that, he kind of ran out of words and he began to kind of settle down a little bit. By this time, he had totally lost his appetite. And so he just pushed it aside or actually pushed it towards her. She grabbed it, took it on. She's apologizing, all kinds of stuff. And so he's just whatever. And he determines to himself, when I get home, I'm going to write the hottest letter that anybody in the world has ever written. And I'm going to write it to the president of this airlines. And I'm going to give him a piece of my mind about that roach on my food. And so he does that. He gets home, gets a little bit of rest, wakes up the next day, and he writes this letter and he fires it off to the president of that airline. In a few weeks, he gets a special delivery package. It's not really a package. It's one of those uh, forms, you know, like a box that holds letters and stuff. And he opens it up. Sure enough, that's what it is. It's a letter package from the president of that airline. And he opens it up and it's several pages in there, including vouchers for free travel anywhere they go for a free trip. And, and he begins to read this letter. And the letter begins to say, just apologizing one way after another. The president of the airline, I'm so sorry that this happened. Uh, the stewardess who served you that has been... Uh, you know, she may even lose her job over that, but we're disciplining her because of her lack of attention to customer appreciation, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we've even, we took the plane out of service and we had it disinfected and we did all of this stuff. And the guy finished reading it and he thought to himself, well, finally, somebody listened to me. 
he takes it and he flips it over and attached to it, the second page of this, he recognizes is the letter that he sent to the president. And somehow the secretary messed up when she put it all together because she took his letter and stapled it to the one from the uh, president of the airlines. And then in the bottom of his letter, in the writing of the president of the airlines, is this little note to the secretary. Please send this guy our standard roach letter. Now, what do you suppose was in his heart when he got to that point? That's us in many ways. If we don't get our satisfaction in life, we let somebody know. Usually, we let them know that we're not satisfied with a heaping dose of attitude attached to it. And when it doesn't go our way, when we let them know, then we just get more attitude about it. You know that one of the things that preachers do on Sunday mornings when they come to church is they read the people who show up. And so this happens on a regular basis. Now, I'm going to say this, and y'all are going to start running every time you see me walking up on Sunday morning. Because I watch people as they're coming up, and I can tell most of the time who's glad to be at church and who's just at church. I can often tell which family's been the one that has had sacrifices at home before they ever showed up at church. Your heart finds a way to show up on your face. And the situations of life, like a cockroach on your salad, have a way of ruining your attitude. Now I want to take all of that and let's push it onto the workplace. How are you at work when you show up and the boss starts in? How are you as it relates to your everyday life? You know, some of the worst advertising for Christ is Christians. Charles Swindoll said it this way. A lot of Christians have such a long face. That's the, that's the picture of being just dejected and totally beat up in life. He said, some Christians have such a long face that they can eat corn out of a Coke bottle. Even when it's rain, not raining outside, they just spread gloom and doom. How is it for you? I want to know as we start off this morning, and I'm talking about this choice that is to be made. How do you approach your job? Tomorrow morning, less than 24 hours from right now, most of us are going to wake up, and before our feet even hit the ground, we're going to have thoughts about what the rest of the day has in store for us. How do you feel about work? How does it hit you when you start thinking about where you're going? Are you a bitter employee? Are you a complainer? Let's take another step with all of this. This is where he starts with us. A wise person is hard to find. You recognize them by the way they look on their face. And so now we get to chapter. Here's the deal. If you're going to have to make a choice, you need to choose carefully what you do. 
I just got through saying you have to make a choice. Is this situation that you have... Oh, by the way, let me just kind of step back for a second and let's take it off of the workplace and let's put it a little more in the direct context of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here. Let's talk about your government. One of the things that I have heard the most uh, as far as the sweeping across the spectrum of discussions that I have on any given week... This idea seems to be at the forefront of our thinking that America is being ruled by an ungodly set of leaders. Now, I'm not here to argue whether that's true or not, but I am going to say, let's take that as an example about whether we're bitter or not. How is your perception of where we are as a country and where we seem to be going with the leadership that we have. So now that leads me then to this idea that we need to choose carefully. If we know we have a choice how we're going to approach it, let's choose carefully how we do. Dr. Charles Garfield, this is a true story, by the way. Dr. Charles Garfield, years ago, was in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And he regularly had to travel the area, the, the bridge, I'm told, I've not been out there, that connects... San Francisco and Oakland, I think they call it the San Francisco Bay Area Bridge or something like that. And in those days, maybe it still does, it, had, it was a toll road. And so every time you went on, you had to go through this toll booth area and pay so that you could get across and come back. Well, he did this on a regular basis. And so one day, as he was doing it for the 10,000th time, he pulls up to pay his toll and he hears loud music. Unusually starts looking around to see if there's a car around in his plan. It's not, but he gets a little bit closer to the toll booth and he realizes that the music is coming from the toll booth where he's about to go through. And there's a guy in the toll booth and he is dancing. I mean, he's just going off dancing to the music. Not like, like he's totally oblivious to whatever else is going on in the world. He's lost in the music, lost in himself, and in that toll booth just dancing up a storm. So Dr. Garfield gets up there and he says, hey, man, what are you doing? And the guy says, huh? <laughs> what are you doing? So I'm dancing. Okay, gives him his money, drives off. But after he drives off, Dr. Garfield said, I'm gonna, next time I get, I'm going to find that guy again. I got a few questions for him. And it was a while before he got to that same deal. But sure enough, one day comes and he gets in the same line. He hears the music. He looks up. He's in the right line. And he gets up there and he stops his car this time. And the guy's dancing. The music's playing. Same scenario as before. And it, Dr. Garfield looks at him and says, man, what are you doing? He says, huh? He turned down the music. He turns it down. What are you doing? I'm dancing. Well, I know you're dancing, but what are you doing? Here's what the guy said. I'm going to be a dancer. And so I'm practicing. He said, I come in every day at 8.30, and from 8.30 to 4.30, my boss pays me to practice dancing. I'm dancing. Dr. Garfield just kind of shook his head, shook his head, looked at him, he said, I I, I don't, (laughs) what? And the the guy in the toll booth says, listen, he said, look down here. He said, you look down there, what do you see? He said, well, I see toll booths. He said, that's right, 17 toll booths across there. He said, what do you see beyond the toe? I know you see the toe, but what else do you see? He said, well, I see guys in them. Uh, I see cars going, but he said, yeah, in those toll booths, those 16 other toll booths, you see guys standing in them. He said, you know what those toll booths are? And Dr. Garfield said, they're toll booths. He said, no, those are vertical coffins. And every other person who comes here to work every day, they stand in their vertical coffin and they just die a little bit more every day. Not me. I'm dancing. 
Now, I want you to think about that. Because here's a guy who made a choice. I can't think of a more boring job than doing what that guy had been charged to do. Stand in a little bitty area all day long and see people come by and treat you like you're not even there. This guy made a choice. He made a wise choice to make the most of what he had. The decisions that we make in life impact our quality of life. That's especially true for us as we go to work. So I want you to put yourself on the job again. I want you to envision that person at work who makes your life so hard. And let's see what the preacher has to say about them. Let's read a little bit further now. He turns his attention now to the arena of life for his readers. And specifically now, this is an arena where they don't have any choice because he's talking about their authority in life who is the king. In verse 2 he says, I say, keep the king's command. I'm going to stop there. We'll read a little further in just a second. But he wants his readers to get this basic reality. Keep the king's command command. That sets up a discussion that we need to have. And this is the discussion that's probably going to keep me from getting all the way through this passage. We're supposed to go all the way through verse 13 today. Not going to happen. All right. But let's get this one. The basic understanding that he begins with as it relates to us in our lives is that we have an authority to whom we must be subordinate. Let me put that a different way. You have to be submissive to somebody. And he starts with the king. It's an interesting thing that in this particular case, the guy who's putting this information together is the king. And he's going to give us a a king's perception of how life goes. And so he says to this person, make a good choice. And your good choice starts with understanding where you have to be subordinate in your life. Obey the king's command. Who is it in your life to whom you have to submit or to be subordinate to them? I was a youth minister for a long time. And in the process of those years as a youth minister, I had this recurring thing that came up for me. Regularly, I had parents who would come to me who had teenage kids, boys, girls, it didn't matter. But the parents would come, sometimes single moms or dads and sometimes both parents. They'd come to me and here's essentially what they would say. Preacher, you got to, not preacher at those days, it was Mark, just a youth minister. You got to do something with my kid. Now, think about what they just said. Mark, you need to do something with my kid. Now, my follow-up question is, what's wrong? You know what's wrong typically in those situations? They would say, They just won't mind me. They're just rebellious. So I would say to them something like this. Let me get this straight. You've had them for 16 years, and you're wanting me to do something with them? You want me to undo 16 years worth of parenting for you? Or what? Here's a scenario from the other side. Often, the same kids would come to me. The kids, not the parents. Mark, you got to do something about my parents. Well, what do you mean? My dad, he's a nut job. I agree. I've met your dad. I know that's true. You have my prayers on a regular basis. Your dad's a nut job. What do you want me to do? Well, he's, he's a nut. He's a control freak. 
Well, yeah, you're right about that too. I've met your dad. You know what those kids often did? The guys? They were so unhappy at home with parents who were overbearing. I mean, make me make up my bed. Horrors, you're kidding. Those same kids, in order to get out of the house, often went and joined the Marines. Hello. You, you hear that? I would say to them, you did what? I'm all for defending our country and all, but if you're trying to get away from a controlling dad, you just made the biggest mistake in the history of the world. Because drill sergeants in those days, they could legally smack you around. Now, I want, here's what I want. And parents especially, this is especially for parents here. God has set up a system of authority in creation. All of us answer to somebody. All of us have to be subordinate to somebody. Parents, you are the first level of that. God's primary design is that authority and the structure of authority be learned in the home. All right, now I'm going to say that again. I want more amen. No, I'm not going to say it again. That's a place for us to get lots of amens, okay? I don't want you to do it now. Just placate me if you do. The God set up the home as the primary and first place and order. First place for a child to learn authority. And if he doesn't learn it there, there's another level. You know what the second level is? It's teachers in our school systems now. How's that working out for you, teachers? You see, now here's the deal. So now I'm, I'm playing. I'm an old man, okay? I got this way by living a long time. I've seen a lot. Now, one of the things I've seen is this move across America where parents have done a hands-off thing for whatever reason. I got my own theories about why they've done that. But they raise children more to be their friends than to be children and raise them with a particular goal in mind. We'll talk about that tonight. But parents raise them up and it's almost a hands-off approach when it comes to discipline and order and authority and learning God's authority lines and all that in life. And so those kids then go off to school. I'm talking about kindergarten school or maybe it's preschool or whatever. And so the teacher then now is, you see, it's hard to be a parent because you got these two knucklehead kids or three or however many you happen to have. And they're just like their daddy, these kids. And they won't listen. And it just wears you out. So sooner or later, your kids get over, you send them off to school. And so your two that you can't control, you send off to school. And you stick them in a room with 30 other kids and say to the teacher, you handle it. That's crazy. That's way yonder crazy. You know what's even crazier than that? For the system to say, oh, we just can't, we got to be nice. We got to build their self-esteem. We can't do anything to make them mind. Because when we do, mama comes running up here saying, what'd you do to my kid? Oh, you mean the kid that you couldn't handle so you sent him to us? Maybe I'm getting a little too personal here for our times. And then we understand why kids take AK-57s or 47s or whatever and go shoot up schools. No wonder. 
Our country has lost what it means to submit to authority. We've not forced it. And God's design in the home. And we do or don't do that and we send it to the next level, which is a school system potentially that doesn't or doesn't, maybe they do a little bit, whatever. They do, and if a kid doesn't get it there, then the next level is law enforcement. Yesterday, I was watching my favorite show. I have lots of favorite shows. This one was on, so I was watching this favorite show. It's Cops. And I like to watch it. Now, you know, my wife works in the federal prison system, right? And she's up there with all of my dad's friends. And um, so um, I like to watch cops because it reminds me just how good I have it in life most days. We're watching this deal on cops last night. (laughs) Honest, they get a phone call. These guys are Atlanta police officers. They get this call that comes across the radio. We have two juvenile males uh, firing guns in a neighborhood. So these cops rush to it, right? They get over there, and as they go down, they're looking for these guys in alleyways, etc. They come around the corner. Here they are, these two guys walking towards them. One of them's 18 and one of them's 16, we find out later. And as the cop comes towards him, this one guy reaches into his pants to pull out a gun. Now, when it's all said and done, one of them had a machine gun, and the other one had a pretty good high-powered uh, pistol, and so the cop throws a car in the park, jumps out, guns drawn, down on the floor. The guy's trying to get his gun out, can't get it. He's lucky he didn't get shot. And remember what I'm saying: lines of authority, right? So the cop goes over, he throws the guy on the ground. I always love that part. He throws the guy on the ground, and he tries to help get this gun out. The knucklehead guy has his gun so worked into his belt that he can't get it out, which probably saved his life in that particular case. Now, the cop has him sitting down and in the course of the discussion says something to the guy like, what were you thinking? They said, well, what are you doing? You're going to shoot me or what? The cop said, oh, well, I could have shot you. He said, well, you're going to shoot me now. And I was thinking to myself, this guy does not get authority. He's fixing to go away. The 18-year-old, go away from carrying a weapon, shooting it in the neighborhood. He's going away to people like my wife and some of the other prison workers that we have in our church. And in his mind, he's still in this authority showdown. Who are you to tell me I can't carry a gun? If a kid doesn't get it at the home level and he doesn't get it at the school level and he doesn't get it at the law enforcement level, where's he going to get this idea of authority? And here's the kicker in all of that. Ultimately, Scripture says, every knee will bow. That's an authority statement. Every knee will bow and acknowledge God's authority over them. You ready for this? Parents, if you wash your hands of authority in in the lives of your kids, if you say, I can't do it, I won't do it. If you do that with your kids, you put them on a path that might just jeopardize their eternal salvation. Because everybody has to come to a point that they recognize that God is God and they're not. We look at America and we say how awful it is because we've raised a generation or generations now of children who don't know authority. How much more true is that? 
in heaven. How many people will go to hell, literally, because parents said, I just can't do anything with them. And all the Christian love I can muster to you parents, I say, suck it up and get the job done. And I'll add to that, I'm way glad my kids are gone already. Not really. Because I care for you and I hurt for you and I know how hard it is day in and day out. First part of verse 2. Keep the king's command. There's an authority structure set up in life by God and you're part of it. And ultimately you have to come down. Let's take it in the government section now. We'll pull it down to the job section as I close all of this off today. If you don't get that right, you're doing damage to yourself, the people around you, and ultimately to the cause of Christ. We live in an area and we live in a time when it is very popular even for Christians to badmouth the government. Just for fun, go read Romans chapter 13 this afternoon. And see what it says about our role as Christians in the face of even wicked rulers. Here's the deal for all of that. I'll just compress it all into this statement. Your decision about how you're going to respond to a wicked boss or a wicked government has direct implications on the way people around you view Christ. Go back to our skit this morning. We, we segregate these things in our lives. And we talk about doing church stuff and churchy stuff. But we never translate how that impacts how we live our life every day. And the people around us are smarter than we give them credit for. And the people you work with when you're part of the let's slam the boss today at the water cooler discussion, you wash your Christian influence right to the side. And it's more popular to talk about the government that way. But you still wash your Christian witness to the side. Ultimately, he comes down, verses 11 through 13, and this is what he says. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The bottom line for life for all of us, whether we have a boss who has horns or not, is we got to be faithful to God. And we live every day to glorify him. So that when you die and go to heaven, you leave a trail of people who watched your life and they said, I want a heart like his. Let's pray. And so, Father, I pray that you take all of this and put it in some kind of a sense of order in our minds. And help us to see our place in Jesus' name.